Hello. Welcome back to Play in the System. Sorry it's been so long. It's been ages, hasn't it? So, um, yeah, what's been going on? Well, I hurt my back just as everything was going what I thought brilliantly towards the end of July into August I was playing tennis and um, I heard a kind of I don't even know if I heard it or whether I've mythologized this but anyway whatever happened I heard this kind of sound in my back and a uh, fairly agonizing pain so I said to my tennis buddies that uh, unfortunately <laughs> I'm going to have to retire from the match. I kept up a brave face because we kind of do, don't we? I was like, yeah, it's not so bad. I genuinely didn't think it was that bad. And um, yeah, I went home, which was a struggle. And suddenly found myself in the most agonising pain. Like a stabbing pain in my leg, which was weird because I'd hurt my back. And uh, yeah, I've got myself a cup of tea, so I'm going to pour that out complete with tea sound effects. And uh, yeah, after two days of not being able to sit down, lie down, which also meant not being able to sleep... I um, went to the doctors and got some very, very strong drugs. Cocodamol and naproxen. Two words I'd never heard of before. And um, I was just desperate to sleep, you know. So uh, then having contacted the osteopath, he then informed me that I'd misplaced my hip, <laughs> which sounds kind of funny, like I'd lost it, Mis <laughs> lost it on a remote island in Scotland that I went to for my family holidays. See, I'd misplaced my hip, which basically meant it was pretty out of its socket, and I'd also put my vertebrae out, L4 and L5, which then, in turn, inflamed my disc which then, in turn, hit my sciatic nerve. Now, <laughs> I know anyone listening to this who's ever experienced anything to do with their sciatic nerve is already wincing in agonising, tooth-hurting, shearing, unadulterated, unable to concentrate on anything else pain. For anyone who hasn't ever experienced anything to do with the sciatic nerve, you're just thinking, yeah, can't be that bad well it is it's really bad so yeah and I thought I'd be kind of mended in a week I'd never really hurt my back like this before well as you can probably tell from how long it's been between podcasts it's been four months and I'm still not better I had to take six weeks off work and uh why am I telling you this you may be wondering, well, because I've had 
revelations. Yes, it also gave me some time to think. I've not had any time to think for a long time with my two wonderful children. Um, so yeah, I rediscovered, I'd come across this before, but I sort of thought I'd embedded its ideas and then moved on when I hadn't. I rediscovered a movement called minimalism. I came across it a while ago and thought it was kind of a bit, a bit wank really, <laughs> for want of a better term, because it very much seemed like two successful young men without families throwing away all their stuff and living in an empty apartment, <laughs> which I thought, well, lovely idea. Um, how's that going to work for me with my two kids? <laughs> Mortgage and blah, 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 as we all know. So I kind of thought, well, fair enough, nice idea, but pretty useless. Anyway, they're also a decade on from their minimalist wank. And they've also kind of grown up a bit and I think really matured their idea. Um, so the book I came across was called Love People, Use Things Because the Other Way Round Never Works. And really the central point of this book was intentionalism. Doing intentional things with your time, money, life, etc., etc. I really love this idea of intentionalism because minimalism implies that you just get rid of everything. Well, I approached it that way and after hurting my back, I thought, okay, fine. Let's not do anything that I actually don't need to do. Need as in you need to eat, you need to breathe, you need to wash, arguably. Um, you need to pay the mortgage, you need to go to work, you need to look after your kids, cook for them, dress them, wash them, wipe their bums. And you need to love, so you spend time with your loved ones. But I thought, in my infinite wisdom, I know I'll throw away making things <laughs> and I'll focus purely on my job which is a good job you know I work for the University of Westminster and I run the music course there so it is creative it's very demanding as well but I thought I know I'll throw away making things anyway four months later I was in the biggest pit of depression I've ever found myself in without being in any kind of three-day hangover or, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure you can fill in the next bit, or any other chemically-induced depression that I might have brought upon myself over my many travels in life. Cocodamol also is a depressive. So, yeah, after four months, I found myself in the biggest black hole of depression where... I felt as if I was down a big, big, dark hole and the small glimmer of light 
coming into that hole was getting dimmer. Sounds bleak, doesn't it, now? But yeah, it was bleak. It was really bleak. So yeah, fill in the gaps. I'm back. I'm making things again. It means getting up at five in the morning so I can spend some hours making music and podcasts before my life starts. Um, but I have taken some things away from this great book. Sips for a cup of tea and reflection. Creativity is really important, isn't it, to all of us? Um, it keeps me sane. Probably keeps you sane as well, right? So, yeah, share with me some of your creative things. Send me some music. I'll play it on the, sh- I'll play it on the show. And I also took away this intentionalism idea. And sold my PlayStation 5. I love video games, but they're just further down the list to me than the other things I love. You know, family and stuff aside. But no, actually not family side. For me, my number one priority in life is my family. And that's what led me to have my first ever full-time job. I love my family and I want to be there and I didn't want to be a touring musician who was half around my family. Disclaimer, not to say that all touring musicians aren't there for their families, but I personally know what I'm like on the road and I didn't want to be that kind of dad. So I kind of quit that. And yeah, that meant being a studio-based musician. And it seems now music education is just banging beyond all belief. And more and more people are making music, which is great. But that also means more and more people want to kind of learn about music. So um, I do that a lot now. And that's really changed, maybe, from people wanting to buy music uh, to now people want to make it. I think they call it the democratisation of music production in academic worlds. Stops for a sip of tea and that weighty concept. So, yeah, I've become an intentionalist. I sold my PlayStation 5 and I'm now spending all of my spare time making things. And that includes the kids. So there's a, you know, next, the next episode, I'm going to go into a special purchase I've bought and um, I'm going to record some snippets of what I've been doing with that. So yeah, I'm introducing some excitement. So yeah, stay tuned for the next episode for this exciting purchase and how the intentionalism is progressing, progressing. So yeah, welcome back. Sorry it's been so long. And Let me know how you're all doing out there. Oh, yes, I also forgot to mention that um, I've done a tutorial for my wonderful colleague, Dr. Kirsten Hermes. She's written a book called Performing Electronic Music Live. And she asked me to do a tutorial on performing electronic music live on modular synthesizers which, of course, I was very happy to do. So, yeah, link in the show notes. So in today's... Today's? (laughs) So so in this episode of Playing the System, I'm going to introduce some new uh, features 
I want to start playing your music. And I can't do that now because you don't know about it. But after hearing this, hopefully you do. So send me your music. I might put a shout out to some people I know who listened and say, can I play your music? And I'm introducing a section that I'm going to do all the time. It's going to be called Down the Rabbit Hole. This has been inspired by Jamie Liddell's amazing podcast called Hanging Out with Audiophiles. I absolutely love it. Massive shout out to Jamie Liddell. Your podcast has kept me really sane through a very dark time. And what I love so much about it is it makes me feel creative. That's hard to do. So, Jamie, you're doing an excellent job. And all of you out there, if you haven't already listened to Hanging Out of Audio Files, I think you'll love it. So, yeah. Not only that, go and subscribe to Jamie Liddell because when people do such a great job, it's brilliant if they can keep on doing it, which usually means getting a bit of cash for it. So yes, hanging out of audio files. So I've changed this the format of the show a little bit and um, I'm going to introduce a weekly section called Down the Rabbit Hole. I want to play some of your music and today's guest is none other than Harry Sword, who wrote my favourite book of this year called Monolithic Undertow in Search of Sonic Oblivion. It's out on the equally incredible White Rabbit books who have got just so many great things to read. I'm kind of a fan of White Rabbit books, like I was a fan of record labels. In the 90s, XL, Wall of Sound, uh, Skint. White Rabbit Books is great. So yeah, check that out too. So let's get on with the new feature. This is going to be called Down the Rabbit Hole. So in Down the Rabbit Hole... I'm just going to share with you my weekly musings on what I've gone down the rabbit hole that week. So this time, I went down the rabbit hole on four tracks. A while ago, I bought myself, re-bought myself a four track. I learned how to make music on the four track. Many, 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 many years ago, my dad came home with this black box with loads of knobs on it. He said, son, I bought you a present. I must have been 13. This was the greatest present my dad has ever bought me well he's bought me a lot of great presents but this was one of the absolute greatest presents he's ever bought me none of us knew how to work it but the joy this thing brought about when i when i slowly painfully painstakingly figured out how to use it and moments of sheer joy such as when you record something and you turn the tape over and because it uses two channels of stereo so a normal cassette tape has Side A, stereo, side B, stereo, turns them into four mono tracks. When you turn the tape over, it all plays backwards. So the sheer joy of discovering this without anyone having told you was just mind-blowing, as well as the famed pitch controls on four tracks to be able to slow things down, speed things up, turn the tape over, record it, turn it over again, play it, record, turn over again, and you get forwards and backwards combinations. 
and it quickly became apparent to me that this was what I wanted to do with my entire life. Muck about with sound. Out of the window went the piano practice, out of the window went any formal music. In came high levels of madness, experimentation and play. So I loved it. Anyway, the four track died and like many people, I got rid of it. Probably shouldn't have done a long time ago. And yeah, a couple of years ago, I bought myself one again. And I've been using it ever since. But today I thought I'd check out one of the very famous techniques where you treat the four track like an instrument. So effectively you record different notes on all four channels and then you play the sliders up and down. I tried to find out when I was putting this episode together who the originator of this technique was. And I, you know, my limited research couldn't find it. I thought it was Brian Eno. But then knowing Brian Eno, he might have come up with it. He might have borrowed it from someone else. I don't know. But then when I looked on the internet, loads of people use this. And I couldn't really find the source. Alessandro Cortini uses it. It's a very famous way of doing things. But I personally never done it. And it was one of those things I thought of, I had done. I was like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But um, I never had. So, yeah, I thought I'd do it. So I recorded. Here, I've got my my thing here. Let's put in a, put in a tape. Do you know something I also noticed I love? Is I love the sound of, of mechanical things. You know, the noises of cassettes. The noises, you know, the rewind, the play. So anyway, it did go a bit wrong um, because I seem to have only recorded three of the four, but you get the idea. So here we go. On the first channel, I'm going to fade in a chord. There we go. And then on the channel three, oh, Channel two, but it did work. Channel three, and I'm fading these up. And channel four. How cool is that? Yeah, these are recorded using the wonderful Spitfire Audios library. So you can play it like an instrument. I'm fading channel two now. Channel three. So cool, isn't it? And you record the whole tape with these drones. It takes a while. Pitch dial, see? Make it extra wobbly. Huh. 
How awesome is that? So, of course, because it's a four track, we can also muck about with the tape speed. And I've got a Tascam 424 Mark II, which is pretty unique because it has two, it has two, it has three tape speeds. Normally a four track has two. This one has high, normal and slow, and they're pretty much octaves, which is just dead handy. So yeah, let's load up playing the first sound and I'm gonna drop the speed. Here we go, we're on high. Now we're on normal. Drop it to slow. Drop it again. Okay. It's going really slow now. And I've seen the tape heads go round. Also going to take a while to come in, isn't it? A bit. Here it comes. Amazing is that. I just, I can't really believe I haven't done this before. It really is utterly joyous. Such a wonderful thing to do. And yeah, of course, you can also, that's just dry, you can add in effects. So I've just taken three effects from my uh, awesome stomp box collection. I've got a Strymon Blue Sky Reverb, which has the wonderful shimmer function, which adds an octave up. I've got the June 60, that's just arrived, the TC Electronic Juno Chorus, but I've only got it plugged in in mono. 
But yeah, I've got that. And I've got the Chase Bliss Audio Mood pedal, which is just lovely, but utterly bonkers. So yeah, now I'm just going to play that with some stomp boxes on. side of the mood. I don't know what I'm doing with this pedal by the way. Yeah, lovely. So that is 
using the four track as an instrument. How nice is that? I also made another tape, so let's flip out the tape. I think I did one, yeah, I made one with some violins. That's channel one. Very, you know, what's that's called? Channel two. Channel three. Channel four. That's a reverb. Channel one. Channel two. Channel three. Let's drop it up to. Mood pedal is crazy, so let's. (laughs) 
So yes, that is using your four track as an instrument. Now, you can do this on anything. You don't have to have a four track, but something about that tape, isn't there? So nice. And I've been thinking about the podcast as well. And I'm going to slightly widen. Widen? (laughs) I'm not going to widen. I'm going to narrow its focus. I thought it should be playing the system, but have a sort of subtitle. Modulars, field recordings, minimalism, and... modern classical or something like that you know because it's basically about music isn't it i tried to not make it about music but it's about music so yeah i thought i'm gonna just slightly uh clarify what the podcast is about and in the hope of attracting people that might like it so yes now it's time for the interview with harry sword go and check out his book it's absolutely stunning it's about the history of the drone And yeah, we talk about, obviously, the history of the drone, but we also really, in the nature of this show, widen it out into the socio-political realm of what the drone means. So yeah, I won't spoil it. Enjoy it. It was a real honour to have Harry Sword come on the show and a big thank you to him, firstly for writing the book and secondly to agreeing to come on playing the system. Enjoy the show. See you on the other side. I am joined today by the inspirational Harry Sword, who wrote my favourite book. I'm reaching behind me to grab it. My favourite book of the year, Monolithic Undertow, In Search of Sonic Oblivion. You can tell by my cover, it's already battered, bruised, read and reread. I absolutely love this book. It's my favourite book released this year. I've been all over the uh, social media world, talking about it, setting up book reading clubs and everything. It's an incredible book. So thank you so much, Harry, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having this, me. Cheers. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really stoked that you agreed to do it because the show originally started out as an idea of helping musicians yeah. become professional. That was my kind of idea was like how do I help the next generation become professional and that word sits uneasily with me yeah in contrast to the word amateur which I found out much later in life means to do things for the love of yeah not to be bad at and I've been chewing over this and what I found so incredible was that your book as well as forging a historical narrative of the drone yeah actually tackles similar questions to what this podcast emerged to do mm-hmm. which is questions of the cultural age we live in questions of neoliberalism questions of spirituality and connection to music yeah and like you i decided not to write oh not write not to do a podcast on professionalism but to actually do one that questions the role of creativity in the age we live in. And I believe your book does similar things, which is quite interesting to me. So I I think 
I thought it'd be interesting to sort of start at the end because I think that's where, you know, yeah. the final sort of paragraphs have tears streaming down my face reading your book because I was like, yes, yes, yes. And it led me to these incredible revelations yeah. of my own practice and similar questions raised on this podcast with um, fellow writer David Shepard, who wrote the Brian Eno biography, which really revolve around... Um, making alternative musics as a political statement that aren't overtly political, yeah. such as in their lyrical form and things like that. So that, I think that's where we're going to end. But let's go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And I know you talked about this in the book, but can you just talk... I'd love to know a little bit more about your thought process as you clearly were kind of into this doom metal, yeah, you know, yeah, scene. Yeah. And you were like, I want to write about this. Yeah. Yeah. But then it suddenly flipped. It's, it's, Can you just talk to me about absolutely. that moment? It was, a bit of a, it was a bit of a revelation in the sense that I, I, I had been writing about doom metal for quite a long time. I'd, I'd actually done, I'd done the um, cover feature for Record Collector on Stoner Rock in, I think, 2015. I'd done big features for The Quietus, for Record Collector, for a, a number of publications. And I'd been kind of going to this festival in the Netherlands, Roadburn, which is, yeah. for anyone listening that's not been or doesn't know what it is, Roadburn started in the late 90s, early noughties as a relatively purist kind of doom and stoner rock festival. It was the kind of epicentre, worldwide epicentre, right. really, of that world. Um, and it was quite small. There was, uh, uh, to begin with, I think there was, uh, there was only about three or 4,000 people, and it grew and grew. It's relatively small now. It's a bit what, what you could describe as a boutique festival. There's only about 10,000, 15,000 people there. But it's yeah. grown to become something far bigger than just focusing on Doom and Stoner Rock and that world. It's basically become a very eclectic program which encompasses everything from Diamanda Gallas to, say, Russell Haswell. There's electronic music, there's folk music. Um, it's tied together by the idea of heaviness, I suppose. But right. it's, um, it's a great, it's a fantastic festival. There's a very kind of, people take their music very seriously there. People will turn up half an hour before a show and stand patiently. There's no milling around between rooms when a band's playing. Everyone stays stays put for the duration, which I love. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's a fantastically kind of reverent atmosphere, I'd say. Um, and anyhow, I've been going to Roadburn for a few years. I was watching a band called Bong Ripper, um, who are a superb kind of instrumental doom band. play crushingly heavy, very slow um stuff and they were performing an album they did called miserable they were doing the whole thing in its entirety and a, a mate of mine who we, we we were covering it for the quietus um just turned to me on the way out he's like it's like the wailing wall in there like, and that really kind of summed mm. up for me that feeling of of semi-religious kind of awe that that yeah. that that doom metal nails really when when it when it's when the atmosphere when the stars align you know um mm. and i'd be i'd been toying with the idea of writing a, a, a history of 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 doom and that whole world because it hadn't been done before um but i just started to think a bit more deeply along those lines and mm. started to think well what what is it other than really heavy riffs and they're kind of hypnotic side of things what what is it that ties all of this music together what is it that ties a lot of the music that i'm interested in and it, it, it all led back to the drone in the sense that sustained tone is very often at the core of that music and i started to think a little bit more deeply okay well the drone is a far 
bigger subject than this relatively small underground subgenre of of metal. The drone is a huge mm. subject which spans millennia, spans religions, spans different places and people. And I started to think about ways that I could explore it while still broadly keeping things within the context of 20th century underground music. Um, mm. I didn't want to go too far down the path of, uh, say, the way that the drones used in, in religious music and so on, because that, I mean, that would have been a whole other book, but I, but I didn't want to just skirt the topic either. I wanted to give people a real context. So yeah. I started to think more deeply about it, and it's it's everywhere from the Om chant to, you know, um, to the music of Morocco, the music of India. It's, it's absolutely everywhere, and uh, it became, it quickly became a much bigger book than I had originally envisaged, so... And did that, was that a eureka moment of creative inspiration? Mm -hmm. Did you have a kind of, I've got it, yeah. I've yeah. figured it out? So, very much so. As soon as I started to move away from the idea of doom metal and into the idea of the drone, but I'm quite clear of the fact that I wasn't writing a book on drone music as genre. I did not want to write a book specifically about drone artists, although, of course, they're part of the story. They're a big part of the story, but they're only... A, a part of it I wanted to write a book about the idea of the drone so some people have been saying oh you know why haven't you featured artist X or you know why haven't you featured I don't know you know there's there, there's various drone artists who aren't in the book and, and I did try to make it quite clear in the introduction that I wasn't writing a book about drone as genre I was writing about the concept of the drone and how it ties together seemingly disparate strands of underground music and seemingly disparate strands of um spirituality so mm. it, it was well, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a, a eureka moment um and it was quite uh it was quite an interesting kind of few months really of of planning what i wanted to say and how i wanted to say it because for anyone listening who's not aware of the process of publishing a book writing a book you you need to put together a, a proposal before before you do anything else really that then goes to a publisher so when when you put together a book proposal you need to have a pretty clear idea of what you're going to write about and how you're how you're going to get there you know so it's a really a case of kind of planning out w the different strands of music that I wanted to write about and who I'd want to speak to and so on so it was, it was a nice process actually but it was it was quite, was it yeah but it was quite a yeah it was quite a um it was quite a long process, really, you know, because it's a huge I, subject. It's a huge subject. Yeah, any one of the... I was very aware, and still am aware, that any one of the chapters of the book could have been expanded very easily yeah. into an entire yeah. book, you know. Yeah. So it's... Um, of course there of course there are omissions. Of course there are... There's going to be people saying, hey, why haven't you featured such and such, you know, but this is... I'm quite clear as well. I think this is my path through it somebody else may have taken a completely different path, you know, written about completely different artists. So, yeah. Well, that that's another aspect I like is the way it straddles that personal relationship to music. Yeah. The entire history of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spirituality uh -huh. and cultures. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is something that I came to as well as a musician. Don't really, I didn't really question what music is for a long time, which I think is quite a strange thing to do, really. Mm. But then I suppose maybe do footballers really question what sport is as a cultural yeah. and social psychological phenomenon? Probably not. They probably yeah. just play the game, you yeah, know? Exactly. <laughs> I've just yeah. got to get the ball in the net. Yeah. But this is what I love so much about the book, and I probably wouldn't have read it if it was a history of drone, even though... Yeah. That is very interesting to me personally as yeah. an ambient artist and, a, sure. and a, you know, essentially someone inspired by the drone. Mm. But I tend to avoid histories of anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I did love Yuval Harari's uh, Sapiens, The History of Humans. I oh, thought yeah. that, was, yeah. that was fantastic. But just the history of music, I tend to avoid those kind of books yeah. and look much more into the questions I think you've raised in this book, Absolutely. which is why. Exactly. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's one, one of the books I most admire... Of, of recent years was I don't know if you've read Rob Young's Electric Eden, which was was uh, uh, yeah I've got it on the shelf yeah fantastic book isn't it I mean broadly yeah. speaking a history of folk music but but you know it's it's um I I, I like the way he framed it as a, you know visionary music it's much more expansive and and I've you know there there were some people in reviews saying well how you know why a coil for example who writes about a folk band when he makes a very good case you know for for mm. bands that you wouldn't necessarily put on the folk spectrum i think it's a mm. it's it, it's it's a wide open um narrative really and i think i was i was talking about you know what is music i was keen on speaking to people like john kramer um the physicist at the university of washington you know who discovered um the idea of the universe expanding and the sound the, the the sound the sound of the big bang you know i'll go into that in the early chapter yeah um and it's um, yeah, i was going to ask you about that yeah. because making assumptions about you as a person which we all do but yeah. don't always a bit too i was thinking you don't strike me as someone who's had a particularly scientific background no, so remotely. i was i was wondering no. you know what no what your you know what you were experiencing when you open you know open the idea on the book okay we've got to start here we've got to start and i love yeah. the the way it's framed as not this the big bang but the big drone yeah exactly like, that's, exactly that's just so awesome but he actually said i said, I, said, I, said yeah. to him, you know so could, could we safely say that it was more of a more of a drone than a bang he said absolutely you know it sounded like a like a uh, a doppler effect really you know um it was like it was almost like a low a low flying Plane. I don't know if you've listened to the the sound file, but you can actually anyone anyone listening to this actually can if they Google John Kramer sound of the Big Bang. He's actually he's actually produced a number of sound files, a number of wows that you can go and listen to, and it's extraordinary. You know, it's an extraordinary extraordinary thing he's done. You know, it's um so. But no, I don't, I don't have a scientific background at all. Um, but I didn't want that to be a barrier to exploring some of the bigger questions well when i when i first read the book you know jumped into chapter one i was like holy hell you know the fuses were glowing in my mind i'm thinking god this is you know but what what's so interesting about the opening of the book is it really reminds me of um, another one of my favorite my favorite book of last year oh, was yeah. um robert mcfarlane's underland have uh, you read, not that? read that no i've not read it no oh it's uh, there's something incredibly similar about the approaches yeah um I can't put my finger on what it is exactly. Yeah. A certain style or approach. Yeah. And, I, you know, I love this cover as well and found yeah. out that oh, that yeah. was the, the Radiohead artist who designed the cover. Oh, really? 
Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, God, and I wrote to him and I thought, he must be into music as well. And of course he is. So he started releasing records and, okay. and everything. So I think, and, and there's, you know, I, I really recommend it. It's a definite yeah. similarity. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, this is fantastic. You know, this is my perfect book that sort of straddles these different areas. Yeah. And then, and then another point I was going to ask you. Yeah. So you move on from the, you know, the big drone. Um, into the womb and the amniotic fluid. Yes, yeah. And the, and hearing being the first sense that develops in babies. Ab- and I, absolutely. And I know you've also just had a child, haven't you? So I was going I've to sort of ask kids, you about... Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, you got three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, f- funnily enough, within the life cycle of the book, um, by the life cycle of the book, I mean from, um, from proposal stages to publication we've actually had two because we're, my oldest son Freddie is uh, 12 but Jack is now four and he was born just as I was kind of halfway through the proposal Lana who's now one and a half was born kind of right in the middle of writing it so so it's very much that, that it's interesting I mean that the whole experience of of uh being a father and um being around young kids is absolutely fed into the book in the sense that yeah it was all written late at night you know pretty much the entire book was written between the hours of 10 p.m and 2 a.m because that's generally the only time i have to write um but but i i think i mentioned in the book actually the idea of the 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 drone generator is quite interesting because both my younger kids for the first year went to sleep with um the white noise generator on and i looked into that and it's it does emulate what's going on in the womb. You know, it's the womb is a much louder, much more visceral sonic environment than we imagine. I was amazed actually, there was a study done, I believe it was by either Stanford or Cornell University um, in 1990, and they measured the sound levels that a fetus is exposed to in utero, and it was, 88 decibels which is extraordinarily loud i mean that's loud and um 88 decibels is loud 88 decibels which is roughly the sound of a car wash you know um yeah so it's um it's a huge it's a huge amount of um it's a huge it's a huge volume um but the idea of 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 the womb is really important i think in terms of why we have such an affinity to the drone i think i, I think pers- i mean i think there's two fundamental sounds that we have an affinity to from day dot and the first is the drone that's the rushing of maternal blood um the second is the four four heartbeat i mean those are the two sounds which are which we have a, a kind of dna connection to i'd say mm. so mm. it's it's absolutely vital really and it's interesting when you when you hear people talking about going to see, say, a band like Sun or Earth, um, or even going to a big dub system, you know, before mm. we started the interview, you were talking about, about Fabric, you know, the, the, the mm. system at Fabric is obviously, you know, one of the greatest sound systems in the world. There's that feeling of immersion and that feeling of womb-like immersion within sound, which I think is so beautiful and so powerful and if you connect to it not not because not everyone does connect to that you know to that feeling of being immersed in sound to that level but if you do connect to it you connect to it on a very deep level i think 
It's absolutely fascinating. And uh, when I was reading that, it made me, we went to see The Prodigy yeah, before yeah. we knew my wife was pregnant. So <laughs> yeah. the first the first show my daughter went to was a Prodigy gig. Saying, where, whereabouts? At, at Brixton Academy oh, wow. in 2012. Okay, superb. And I think that's amazing. And, and like you writing this book with your you know, conception and of yeah. your children. Yeah. My wife and me are in a band called Snow Palms and we yeah. made a record, exactly the same process of yeah. my wife was pregnant and singing yeah. the vocals and then he was born and, you know, we had to squeeze the recording sessions into tiny gaps in yeah. having kids running around. Yeah. A bit like, you know, what I imagine cluster in the 70s was like, you know, we, we live in the forest and the kids... Oh, absolutely. It wasn't quite as... It wasn't quite as idyllic in practice. It was quite difficult. But the record is littered with, you know, little bits of kids, um, things on the monitor. And, yeah. and I loved all that. And, it, and yeah. it's really changed my... I don't know what it's changed. It's changed something radical in my conception of making things and creativity. Yeah. And you just have to get in the zone quite quickly, don't you? When, when, you, when, yeah. when you don't have a huge amount of time to play with or when you've, or when you've got a yeah. very small amount of time... You don't really have the luxury of writer's block, or what, what you know, or the equivalent in in musical terms. If you if you've only got a small amount of time, you just kind of have to get on get on and do it. You know, it's um. So, do you think do you think you can sort of learn to be more creative? And do you think creativity yes. as a practice is yes? You know, like obviously, a same bolt is incredible. Sprinter. I think that you can absolutely... Do you think we can be like that with creativity? Like, do you think, yeah. like, when you're a parent, you just get naught to yeah. sixty? Absolutely. I think. I think. You, I think one of, one of my big uh, takeaways from the process of writing this book is the fact that if you've only got a very small amount of time to use, you you have to, you have to use that, or it simply won't happen. And mm. the whole. I think there's a lot of fluff and a lot of kind of romanticism about the idea of the, the tortured writer and writer's block and all the rest of it. And I think actually, when it comes down to it, that's almost a luxury, you know? Yeah. If, if you have the luxury of just sitting there for seven hours with no other distractions and you can't get anything out and all the rest of it, well, mm. you know, I think... In a way, that's like almost like a luxury. Not not to not to, not to say that it doesn't happen. Of course, there's times when 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 you know things aren't flowing as well as you'd like. But yeah. But I think it certainly has um, made me more appreciative of time of the time that I yeah. have. More respectful. If you... perhaps. not not so much appreciative. Yeah. More respectful of the time. You know, it's like when you're working with in small windows you just have to do it you know yeah and it's always i, I often think it if i could bottle that mm. i would be jeff bezos if you could sell <laughs> that experience yeah to people without children and say yeah. you know grab it and, and people who i speak to about you know becoming a parent or becoming a parent for the first time or that myth of not being a parent to being a parent yeah i describe my experience as it was like a beautiful valley being carved by a glacier. Yeah. It, it, yeah. 
it was a very active experience. Yeah. You know, this huge piece of ice was just yeah. grinding through my soul, yeah, <laughs> creating something beautiful. But it was a very physical process. Yeah, it is very, it's very physical. So you're very tired a lot of the time, and you know, you do yeah. a lot of carrying. It's like the, it, I think yeah. a lot of people who don't have kids don't quite realise that, that it's a, it is a very physical process, and that has a, it has a knock on effect on the rest of rest of your life and, yeah. and it's very gradual and, and you know reading your book yeah. at first I kind of imagined you like you say like this artist you know that wanders to their favourite coffee no. perfectly perfectly <laughs> makes their like cappuccino and then I quickly yeah. came to the realisation that your life wasn't like that no. and wondered about people's relationship to the drone because there is something eternal about your book and, and reading it and then rereading it, yeah, it it works as a loop as well. It it, I, it I'm kind so, of interestingly. That's exactly. I, I, I was wanting. Yeah. I, I was wanting. I was wanting the writing to evoke, um, so, uh, a loop like state, a kind of hypnotic state. Yeah. I was wanting to Im- imbue the writing with that. I mean, I think that so, I'm, something I'm really strict on, to the point of neurosis, is that. If I'm writing about a particular artist, I can only listen to that artist as I'm writing about them, and that's something I've always done. I mean, it sounds mm. like a it sounds like a basic point, but actually, a lot a lot of writers can only listen to say ambient music. They when, when, while they're writing, they can't listen to anything with lyrics or whatever. You know, there's people people are different, but I I, I have to listen to that that artist. You know, because I want to yeah. view the writing with the spirit of of the music that I'm writing about, you know, and I think that writing this book late at night, it was very much a case of headphones on, very loud, you know, almost entering into a kind of hypnotic state as I was doing it a lot of the time. Um, particularly that's so fascinating during the, during the very late night sessions. And there was during the later chapters, I had COVID last year in March. I was really quite unwell for, for a month, like just, it was horrendous, you know, just really unwell. And it was all compounded by the fact that I was supposed to be submitting the book in May and I was completely laid out during a pivotal time. I was supposed to be, you know, finishing up the edit and the last couple of chapters, but I was laid out and then found myself, you know, come April with quite a lot of work to do. But in this state of, you know, I was pretty, pretty, pretty weak and, you know, not feeling great. Um, but I was also quite elated that I'd, you know, wasn't feeling quite as ghastly as I had been in March. So the last yeah. couple of chapters and, and all of the edit, in fact, was, was very much done firstly in the shadow of of COVID, in the shadow of, of being quite unwell. But secondly, it was the first major lockdown, you know. But I didn't really write about that in the book. I didn't want, I didn't really want to um, kind of date it, you know. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot there, there will be a lot of books coming out of this whole huge experience that, you know, the entire world's been through, you know, and no doubt some of them will be fantastic and I'm sure people will have a lot to say, to say about it, but I didn't really want to, I didn't want it to be a kind of memoir in, of, of, mm. of that time, you know, the last, it would have been quite easy in the last couple of chapters to kind of go off on one about, you know, but I didn't. I didn't want to go down that path. That must have. That must have taken quite a lot of restraint to not do that. And I'm incredibly pleased you didn't, because yeah. for me and probably many other readers, this was the escape. Is the wrong word because what I've experienced through COVID 
is a sense of being able to connect with deeper time. Yeah. And this book, I've read it really slowly. Yeah. Very, at a pace I would not normally read. I, I, I destroy books. I'm, I, I read more than I listen to music now. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know what's happened to me, but I've yeah. just got this insatiable appetite to, to, I don't know, to connect with something. And this yeah. book perfectly framed COVID in a bizarre way because it really connects with that deep time experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's... Is that a surprise to you that these two things have coincided? Yeah. And, and, and do you, you know, is that something you kind of share, this sort of sense of we got a glimmer into a, a, an older world almost a, where yeah, it is, time feels deeper, yeah. It is, it is an interesting thing. And I think that, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely come at an, at an interesting time because, of course, you know, when I, when I first started thinking about this subject, it was a, it was a very different world. It's almost, I, I, yeah. you know, the pre-COVID world was, 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 uh, was a very different place. Um, so yeah, I think that that it's um, we've all got a very different relationship to time now. You know, I think it's, yeah. I think something that I found quite, something that I found interesting during, particularly the first lockdown, something a lot of people said, um, and something I found as well. Maybe you found this um, was that they weren't connecting to music in the same way as before. Um, in the sense that a lot of people weren't listening to so much new music. And I think the reason yeah. for that is perhaps that they connect the experience of listening to new music and discovering new music. They connect that quite deeply to the social aspect. I certainly do of going to gigs, going to clubs yeah, yeah. and interacting with people face to face. And I think a lot of people found that experience quite painful in the in the fact that, that, that there was such a, an obvious lack in everybody's lives and i'm sure you yeah. found this as a obviously hello <laughs> as a, sorry <laughs> i'm sure you found this as a as a gigging um musician it must have been pr probably much more visceral f for you um and 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 i think that yeah. i found w w was was you know i'd i'd get quite neurotic about my listening habits I'd get quite stuck on certain bands and, and certain yeah. sounds. I'm a huge Thin Lizzy fan, for example. I went through a stage of for a couple of months of only really listening to Thin Lizzy records again and again and again. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and it's almost like a comfort, comforting thing, I suppose. It's, it, and I think a lot of people found the same thing. I've certainly had conversations with other people um, who, who, who found a similar thing. I've, I found certain music quite difficult to listen to or to want to engage with. I found dance, like I, I love techno, I love house, I'm a DJ, you know, I've, I've you know, got hundreds of 12 inch records upstairs, you know, but I yeah. found that aspect of my listening and musical life just too sad to engage with really, just the idea yeah. of all the clubs being shut. It's just horrible. You yeah. know? I didn't, so I personally wasn't really engaging with that world so much during a lockdown. Yeah. People's, I was going to ask yeah. you, uh, Sorry, I was going to ask you again, you know, clearly you came at this book with a deep understanding of certain genres. Mm. What um, what were the musical discoveries that you made along the process of writing this book? Well, I, I, I think the, the, the avant-garde world, um, I, I, was, I, I was coming at people like Lamont Young and Pauline Oliveras 
and Terry Riley, more from the position yeah, of of um, an in, you know an enthusiastic um, new relatively new listener really you know mm. I I haven't been listening to Pauline Oliveris and Lamont Young and people like that for donkey's years you know I I was kind of just kind of discovering that world as as a relatively new listener you know and, and yeah. making an effort to engage with that world you know and talk to people like yeah like terry riley it was fantastic to be able to talk to him it's fantastic to be able to go over to new york and visit the dream house you know lamont young's sound installation you know so i think that my my musical background is very much like the left field of metal and the left field of electronic music you know and yeah, yeah i've I've listened to a lot of music throughout my life, but the kind of avant-garde side of things, less so, you know, and I've, I've tried to imbue the book with that excitement of, yeah. of coming at a whole other world of music from from, from a, a different side of, from a different side, really, you know. I'm coming from, yeah. I'm not coming from that, that world. I'm coming from the, really from, you know, the world of, metal and techno and so on you know so yeah it, it's it's but i wasn't going to just disregard that simply because it wasn't my world i mean that that would have been crazy you know so i i've i've absolutely loved deeply engaging with that and you know the idea of deep listening you know pauline Oliveris um pioneered that and it's that it's so key to to the drone and to drone music and to so much music and it was so key to the writing of the book, you know, and it's a practice that I kind of perhaps unwittingly practiced throughout my entire life, you know, so I found yeah. that side of things fascinating. That That is incredible because I, as a listener, came the complete opposite direction. Oh, yeah. So oh, I, I've been listening to like Eliana Radigay yeah. and Terry Riley and yeah. Brian Eno and all of these avant-garde yeah. minimalist composers. And... I was into metal as a kid, you know, in 13, 14, 15, really into, you know, different, different bands from Pearl Jam to Metallica and Mudhoney and Soundgarden. And then in my world, Rave landed. Yeah. And that whole world just got blasted out of the equation. Same here, exactly the same thing happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't I hadn't engaged with it and I was astonished when I you know I I'm like you I'm very obsessive music listener. Yeah. And and all music that doesn't sound like drone inspired music to me now sounds insane. <laughs> and I've only been listening while reading this book. I think yeah. I think I, when when did the book come out? Now uh, February. February, yes. February, yeah. So it's been, you know, a good 6 months and I've only been listening to drone artists really deep dived into the playlist that you put out oh yeah accompanying the book yeah and discovered this whole world of music yeah the sleep bong ripper and yeah. sun Raband. i knew i should like yeah but i kept asking every time i put them on i, I don't understand yeah where the angle into this is until reading the book yeah. and then i said ah oh, i yeah. need to go and experience that yeah, that sun. Yeah, thing. And you need and to experience it uh, uh, with, with the intent. I think that that's it. I, I think so. If so much of the music in the book, it needs to be 
experienced in its entirety in the sense that yeah. Sun are a good example of that. You need to go and listen to a Sun album really from beginning to end in order to get the full immersive experience. You know, we were talking about Ilian Radigay. Um It's music that needs to be experienced um, with a certain level of um, intention. You know, you've got to go into it with the intention of 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 submitting to it and enjoying the yeah. process of 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 being an, an active listener. You know, and really just yeah, it's diff- It's interesting, isn't it? I'm talking about being an active listener and kind of submitting at the same time but that's what it is it's it, you've you've got to immerse yourself in it you know yeah so yeah. it's something it's something Brian Eno spoke to me about cuz i went to i went to his studio it's fantastic and um interviewed him um and he talks about the idea of surrender we think of yeah. surrender as being a passive you know a passive verb and it's actually a, a, it, if we think about the things we surrender to in life it's you know sex music religion you know yeah. it's it's actually quite an active um experience you know so it, yeah I was, it's... I was listening to um eno talking to rick rubin yesterday yeah and I, doing my podcast preparation yeah and then i i'm just so bad at it i just was like oh, i really want to listen to this podcast so yeah. i listened to that and um, actually formulated a question that i thought um was really interesting in, in relation to eno yeah and in the podcast with with Ruben, I've never heard Eno talk about this. I've heard quite a few Eno st- stories over the years, but yeah. I've never heard him talk about being, you know, in the 70s being a musician. He was chatting with Harold Bard, and they yeah. set out to make beautiful music that made people feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah. And in the context of the 70s, Eno says this was incredibly antagonistic because music was supposed to be at the forefront of social and cultural and political change countercultural absolutely and revolutionary but it's totally and, revolutionary um, in its own way yeah. isn't it i mean it flies in the face of 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 the artistic kind of drive to be heard really doesn't it which is yeah yeah the revolutionary in and of itself so yeah and and ruben points out an interesting point on brian eno's behavior that at a time he's incredibly flamboyant makeup wearing yeah. But making this music that was intentionally disappearing from view. Yeah. And um, I forgot what, what my question was, but I, I wrote it down. Uh, so what do you think, how, how do you think the changes in society have reimagined um, our needs from music? Because obviously, if well, in the seventies context, things were very music yeah. was at the forefront of social and cultural change, and a lot of people now are arguing that it's not. I think, but I, I'm not so sure about that. I think in in the current situation, with with live music being a, you know, in its current state, I think people are perhaps looking for music that they can sink into at home you know um without having to um what's that no that's that no, that's not what not what, what hold on hold on it's really i mean in, do you mean in terms in terms of the current political situation or the current or COVID yeah or, I, I mean that that comment on on the shift from and this is something i, I think about a lot you know i 
have become increasingly political, as I think yeah. lots of people have. And yet I will disappear into my studio and make sometimes an hour long, slowed down cassette, yeah. fuzzy, ambient composition. And I wondered what you felt it says about our society that there is now a colossal movement of ambient and drone artists. Ambient is exponentially more successful and popular yeah. Yeah. than it ever has been before. And I was wondering what you thought that says about our current society. Well, I think I think it says a lot about our current society in the sense that you know we're 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 spending so much time at home and alone. You know, and it's kind of in a sense it's quite sad that 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 ambient music has come to kind of represent this rather insular uh way of life you know um but i think that i think ambient music can be incredibly useful a lot of people find it you know Eno talks about this a lot it, it's it's music that 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 you can use as simply a, a a background to whatever else you're doing um but in terms of the current the current proliferation of ambient and drone based music i mean i think it absolutely makes sense but on the other hand, you know, a lot of a lot of people are looking for music that's that's perhaps more politically engaged, you know, that's perhaps more viscerally engaged with what, what's going on. Look at bands like Sleaford Mods, you know, they're you know yeah. they're, they're doing incredibly politically driven kind of angry stuff, you know, and people are, are, are absolutely loving loving stuff like that as well. So I think, you know, ambient and drone music is 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 perhaps uniquely perhaps uniquely um suited to to the current the current climate but on the other what's hand, so interesting when i when I, I think a lot of the music i'm writing about in the book is not really particularly well suited necessarily to to homelessness i mean a, a band like earth or sun yeah. um someone like the bug surgeon regis you know it's visceral, it's loud. It's it's at its best, I think, in the in the live arena, you know. And it's mm. that that's that's where where you're going to get the full full effect, you know. But to me, listening to ambient drone based music in my headphones late at night or yeah whatever, there is a sense of even though on my own, it connects me to you know the big drone. It somehow yeah. Yeah. makes me feel connected to. Yeah the entire human consciousness it's almost the same feeling i get you know reading alan watts or yeah there's a connectivity there through it where i become part of something much bigger yeah absolutely and i i i feel the same particularly um particularly with with say pauline oliveris ilian radigay sarah yeah. you know um they they very much put you in that kind of zone of of real hypnosis and by hypnosis i mean that that the feeling of of being incrementally removed from from your own ego you know which is a fascinating state yeah. to be put in you know and it's in that it's that thing of switching off the mind it's a big it's a big thing to to do and to want to do and to be able to do you know and it's um i think it's yeah. it's it's when it doesn't always it doesn't always connect it doesn't always always happen i think it's it's for me that side of listening is very much to do with with being able to put the headphones on and completely immerse into that world it's not it's not so much i wouldn't use say uh an Ilian radigay record to go and 
you know do my emails to although I know some people do but for, for me it's very much like more of a kind of ritualistic thing it's like I have to just I'm not going to listen to that unless I've got time to play the whole thing you know it's yeah. got to be something that I can immerse really deeply into um and when it happens it's it's an amazing feeling you know mm. um yeah yeah no it's it's absolutely remarkable and um I completely agree that uh, I wonder if it connects somehow to the womb experience, mm-hmm. which you're pre-ego in that state, aren't you? And exactly. when you when you hang out with young children, it's very apparent that they, they don't really understand the I. They are yeah. completely connected to everything. There's no yeah. ego. The ego's yeah, yet exactly. to arrive, but, 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 and they my, almost. I think, yeah. My daughter at the moment, she, she, she's going through this stage. Is uh, all kind of? I suppose it's the pre-mirror stage. You know, when you become completely yeah. aware of yourself, and she's, she'll sort of tap herself and just say, "Lana's, Lana's," like mm. she'll tap her arm, "Lana's," like, and then she'll tap my arm, "Daddy's." You know, she seems quite shocked by the revelation that we're two separate people. You know, and it's so it's so yeah. fascinating to watch. It happened in real time, you know. It's the and isn't that fascinating that we're born completely connected to the entire cosmos, universe, yeah. everything. Yeah. We then lose that. Yeah. So we're born with it. We yeah. develop this sense of ego, which you can arguably say in the Western society promotes that. Oh, it, relentlessly, it, especially now, with, we, we, <laughs> yeah. because we all have we have our own ego, we have the self, and then we've got this. Did the digital shadow, you know, which follows us everywhere we go. Gen- I mean, it's it's, you know, the 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 avatar, the digital persona, which is a kind of burden in in, in itself, isn't it? It's like a kind of double. It's like the double whammy, really. So yeah. I think the idea of of being able to disconnect from that and to connect yeah. to something slower and something bigger and something yeah. that just is, you know, it's, I think that's so powerful. And that's what I love about drone-based music is the fact that, yeah. it's the fact that, I, I mean, I, I love I love stadium rock. I love like ACDC and Iron Maiden and, and these big bombastic bands, I, you know, but those experiences are very much predicated on the idea of these huge communal moments of, yeah. of tension and release it's like here's the bridge here's the chorus you go and see iron maiden you're surrounded by eighty thousand people and you can be pretty sure that the people around you and that the people over there and over there you know half a mile away on the other side of the stadium are thinking and feeling pretty much exactly what you are if you go and see a band like sun or earth um you haven't really got a clue what's going on with the person next to you and that's what i love you know it's it's you yeah. don't, you don't have these moments of communal tension and communal release it's very much like its own kind of personal ritual which is a very different it's a very different thing and i think when you remove those traditional markers of time from music when you say no you're not going to have a hook you're not going to have a melody you're not going to have a chorus you're not going to have a rhythm you're not going to have any of that you're just going to have <laughs> a sustained tone and where does that yeah. take you and it takes you to some really interesting places you know i found that the, I, I think the, the other thing the other thing that's really interesting about drone music and, and and the idea of the kind of dissolution of ego when you when you break down the, the what it is to be human what makes us human one of the key facts is that we are aware of our own demise we're aware that we're painfully aware every second of the day of the passing of time, of, of the fact that this is going to end, 
you know mm. so time as you get older becomes you know perhaps more 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 meaningful in some ways but the, the idea of drone music take taking time and doing strange very strange things to time that's really interesting you know like the, the, mm. perhaps the most visceral experience i had with that during the writing of the book was at the dream house in new york um for anyone listening who doesn't hasn't read the book and who doesn't know what the dream house is it's, it's an installation which has been run by lamont young and his wife who's a light artist called marion zazila they've basically been running dream houses in new york city since the early 60s the current one on church street has been going since about 1992 and the idea is that it's it's a sound installation that is never switched off so it's basically this huge um sine wave drone generator very very loud very hot in there lots of incense um and it runs continually from it's the the, the amps are powered on from i think something like midday to midnight but when the installation is closed they never switch the amp off so they just turn the sliders down so actually the, the music's still going you know the drone is still it's still going since you can't hear it you know the the actual yeah. sine wave generator is still is still powering it's just that the sliders down which i think that's such a such a nice little it's a great little workaround you know it's like, incredible yeah and, and, you know, as we were talking, I was thinking yeah. of, of making some grandiose political, not political, some religious assumptions about, you know, the nature of Western religion and Eastern yeah. religions and, and, the, and the relationship that, you know, with Christian God and Jesus and yeah. the Buddha and how you can really draw a parallel to the big stadium worship, ACDC, <laughs> that experience of yeah. surrendering to but you're surrendering the rock to gods. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, I think I say in the book, it's almost like, it's like kind of almost like a Roman spectacle, isn't it? You're, you, you yeah. just never forget your own yeah. role in that. You know, you're, 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 you're diminished. And that's yeah. the thrill of the thrill of stadium rock is that you're thrillingly diminished. You, you, you're, yeah. you're submitting to a spectacle and they're up on the stage and the lights are there. And it's like, you're smaller because of that. Mm. You're part of, you become part of a mass of people. It's like a football crowd. I'm not really interested in sport, but I'm, I've I've been to a few kind of football games in the past, and it's quite an interesting experience being part of a, of a of a of a crowd in in that sense. I think perhaps that's why people enjoy enjoy live sport. It's like you know you you the self becomes perhaps slightly slightly diminished in a, in a different way. Well, you know, you, I think you it, become it, it part does, of yeah, an amorphous mass with the colour and the noise and everything. But it's, it, but I think with 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 drone music, it's a different thing, and it's it's something that happened at the Dreamhouse was I was there for about six hours and time went really quickly I, I just sat there kind of drifting in and out of sleep and I was absolutely amazed to look at my phone because I had only I only looked at my phone towards the end and it was like shit you know I've been here for hours you know time kind of contracting almost it's it's yeah because you don't have those markers of time you know when when you remove the markers of time strange things start to happen so state same with techno actually more perhaps more than any other kind of of electronic music, it, it went, went talking about really kind of really minimal loop based kind of you know like the early kind of Birmingham stuff, the early stuff like the the, the early a lot of the early like blueprint records like James Ruskin's label, um, you know a lot of that early kind of dynamic tension stuff on Surgeon's label, a lot of the early Jeff Mills records as well in Detroit, you know, just a very basic loop 
very, very workmanlike, repetitive, and you start to hear things that aren't there after a while. That's that's really something I find fascinating. You know, if you listen to a loop for long enough, and I'm sure you find this as an electronic producer, you will start to hear things in that loop that aren't necessarily there. You know, it's um, it's it's it does something that's rather strange to your perception of progression. You know, when when you remove traditional markers of progression and melody and so on and you just yeah. you just got a kick drum a hi-hat and you know a little bit and, of and what's so interesting in in those spaces you yeah. know when you're listening to techno yeah. or drone music in contrast to the diminishing of the ego in mm. a big stadium show it's almost like an expanse of the ego yeah to but diminishing in the importance of it yeah. So to me, it's like a realization of connecting into that higher power, and it's something I've experienced when I came off uh, the road. Yeah. After a long time, it caused a complete emotional, social, and psychological meltdown. Yeah. In my brain, and in, and I think a lot of artists. In, in what sense? Just in the sense that you're used to being on stage every night and kind of having that that kind of. Well, if I was to be. If, if I was to tell the story from the perspective of me, yeah. it sounds ridiculous. But what essentially happened was I got a small, tiny drip of a taste of what it's like to be famous. Yeah. Just a little, like a yeah, yeah. What, a spatula amount, yeah. you know? A dip on the tongue yeah, yeah. of what it was like to be famous, yeah. <laughs> and and it, I'm a very uh, questioning person mm. and... It led me to really question who we are yeah. and, and the social mirror and how we build our identity. Yeah. But how much of that is based on social reflections yeah. of how people relate to us. And when you become famous, which I wasn't famous, but mm-hmm. I got a small taste of people re- react, reacting to me mm. in a way that was unusual mm. for me. A different character emerges. Yeah. And now I see that from the Bob Dylan and watching the, re- the recent Cristiano Ronaldo documentary. I too am not into football, but I'm yeah. interested in spectacle, yeah, surrender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and I suddenly realised with Cristiano Ronaldo that the moment when he got Rain, Wayne Rooney kicked out of the final, one of the cup finals, and yeah. he winked at the camera and he became vilified in the UK... Yeah. After that moment, that was almost when the superego Ronaldo emerged. And I thought, oh, of course, that's his defence mechanism. That's his armour. That's his construction. Yeah. He said, right, you will now no longer know, you'll never see me again. That's so interesting. And, and, yeah. and, and, and I, of course, like, if you watch No Direction Home with Bob Dylan, for, after four hours of that, you're further away from knowing who he is, yeah. <laughs> not yeah, closer. Yeah. You... you <laughs> You've, the camera's gone backwards, not forwards. Yeah. And that led me, you know, to that same realisation where I, my personality had almost divided and, and, and it was like one side of my personality was, it was trying to kill the other one. It was like I wanted to be, because it's so addictive, so seductive, I wanted to be the superego me, wanted yeah. to sort of slay yeah. the person who... My friends, you know, mum and dad. Yeah. 
you know, everyone around me relates to me this way. I was like, no, I wanted to be this all the time. I basically turned into a dick. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then engaged with coming out of this experience, engaged with yoga and mm. more surrender-like yeah. practices. Yeah. And, and then that's what led me back to, you know, things like drone music and, yeah. and, and that feeling of consciousness. And I suppose if I have a question related to these experiences. Yeah. And this is very pertinent now in this sort of digitalization of interaction. Yeah. What do you think happens when you're in those shared communal spaces yeah. but having a very introverted experience? What do you think that is? Well, I think... Because it's like drone or yoga. There's quite a lot of times. So, yeah. I think it's actually slightly sacred. I think it's become something very different. And I think it's... In, the way I'd describe it would be very similar to, to a ritual or to going to church if you're religious or, or, where, or, or synagogue or, or, or wherever it happens to be in the sense that you're, you're having a very personal experience, you know? And yeah, there's lots mm. of people there, but you're having a personal experience with, with something much, much bigger, you know? I think it's but it changes, with, and, it changes with other people there. And this yeah. is what I find absolutely fascinating. It's a different experience to, like, you, you know, listening to something in your headphones on your own. Having that inward experience in a group of people... Yeah, exactly. ..is and somehow different. Interesting. If you go and see Sun, have, have a look around, you know, halfway through the show, you'll see such a variety of, of, of reactions. And you'll see a lot of people not, not even facing towards the stage. You'll see some people lying down some people with their eyes closed, you know, you see a lot of different reactions. It's very different to looking around your average rock show, you know. It's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting experience for sure. Um, but I think it's perhaps um, a more profound personal experience, you know, even despite the fact that you're surrounded by people. I mean, for example, at the Dreamhouse, lots of people kept what kind of walking in and walking straight out because it was too loud and too hot and, you know it's like you know too sad. you would have thought having made all the effort to get there yeah. they might kind of exactly <laughs> what is this you know because it's not how you expect it's, you know I was, I was expecting it to be a kind of uh, rather cerebral kind of you think new york installation the first thing that comes into your head is like white cube gallery you know yeah gleaming kind of minimal space it's not like that at all it's like this dirty carpet and really hot and you know it's quite kind of uh gnarly in that sense you know it's quite it's quite visceral and it's really really loud you know it's not like some little speaker it's like a big sub you know it's like, you know it's really loud and you know um but there were people there you know mentioned yoga there were a couple of people doing kind of you know lotus positions and stuff and there were obviously people that go there a lot it's part it's been part of the fabric of new york since the early 90s you know so would you say writing the book has changed evolved developed your relationship with spirituality and and the other um that's a difficult one really um Um, perhaps it's made me made me more 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 aware and more respectful of of um, of the idea of being able to connect to to the infinite. You know, which sounds um, incredibly pretentious, but that's but that <laughs> but that is but that is what 
what we're doing, I think, so often when we're listening to, to drone music. And I, I, was, I was thinking about this the other day. It's, it's, it's very, all music is a form of communication, isn't it? All music is a form yeah. of communication. Very often we're working... If, if, if a songwriter is trying to communicate an emotion which is too big or too deeply felt to be left either internally, not said, or in the realms of conversation, you know, so a good example of that would be like the love song, you know, that's a kind of universal constant, you know, love mm. is a huge emotion, that's why people write about it, because it's, it has to be sung out, it can't be left left in, you know, it can't be left brewing, you know, so that's a universal constant, but the drone, you know, is equally universal, and it's, I think people are tapping into the, the, the idea of the infinite is just almost unbearably huge, you know, yeah. and it, I think that will span every single culture, every single culture, every religion yeah. will be tackling that in their own way. You know, that's another yeah. universal constant. That's what people are tapping into with drone music. They're tapping into the, 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 our, our own awareness of the failing of time. We're the only species, I believe, where we, with, I've got a wave. We don't know what animals think. I mean, but we're, we're pot- <laughs> <laughs> but we're pot- potentially the only the only species that has this kind of awareness of, of the passing of time in the way that we do, as we you know as we were talking about earlier, and I think that's that grappling with that knowledge of certain death, grappling with the knowledge of of something, a universe from nothing, you know. The idea of the infinite, the idea of, of, of something from nothing, the idea of death, these are all universal constants and they're all huge, huge, powerful, difficult things to grapple with. You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at, you know, Hindu theology, Buddhist theology, the idea of Nada Brahma, sounding God, you know, it's, it's the idea of everything springing from the Om, from the drone, from the drone comes everything else. You know, it's yeah. and it's it's has its central place in 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 so mu- so much so many different sacred musics of the world. And I don't, I, th- I think there's a reason for that. You know, it's it's we're, yeah. we're all grappling with the idea of the infinite. We're all grappling with the idea that we're only here for a fleeting moment, and it's painful yeah. and it's difficult and it's terribly sad in its own way you yeah. know and we're all grappling with that and that's why i think we we have an affinity to it you know yeah so but it's in in those moments you know reading this book listening to radigay late at night yeah the pain disappears yeah because you feel very connected to the bigger picture to the constancy and it led me to believe that, of course, I experience pain because I'm a mammal. Yeah. And we're supposed to. Yeah. That pain is mammalian pain. Yeah. For survival, as almost like a you know a computer virus or yeah. You know we're supposed to prioritise our kids because that, as a mammal, is our yeah. biological. We have the imperative to... coding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and watching a child relentlessly smash their head 
until the point when they realise that the head really doesn't like being smashed yeah. at all. Yeah. You know, whether whether it's smashing your head on the wall in frustration yeah. or just the accidental bumps and clunks. Yeah. And very quickly you see the evolution away from head smashing because you get that like horrible <laughs> ring of like... Really yeah, and, and your whole body is a feedback mechanism yeah. Yeah. protecting yourself from hurting it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting watching young kids, kind of, you know, or, or the repetitive speech patterns, you know, repetition is so hardwired into our, into our experience of learning and interacting with the world, you know, it's, um, the, you know, the little phrases that, that are repeated again and again and again, it's, 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 as you know, you know, as any parent knows, it's just so interesting watching that, you know. Yeah, and, and the drone connects you to, to more, connects me to those Sundays as a child, you know, where the shops were shut and there was nothing yeah. on television and time just expanded to feel yes. yeah. everything, you know, yeah. time completely dissolved. Yeah. Much to my frustration as a child, but I'm so grateful for those experiences now. Yeah. And, you know, listening to, to drone music and minimalist music. Yeah. Warping time, warping our perspective of time. And I saw this rather frightening graph yeah. <laughs> about getting older. Yeah. And it mapped perception of time. Yeah. Along age. Yeah. All divided into time on the planet. So, you know, when you're younger and you're thinking, Cri crikey, you know, I'm five and this child's 15. Yeah. So they've been alive three times longer than me. And, you know, my dad is like 40, so he's been alive, you know, what, eight times longer than me. Yeah. And then you're trying to imagine eight versions of your entire life yeah. multiplied out in front of you. And, of course, it expands like a, like, like an infinite amount of time. Yeah. And as you get older, of course, your perception of time yeah. exponentially shrinks exactly. and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. It's scary. It's like it whips around again. Oh, God, it's Christmas again, you know. Like, it's terrifying how fast time starts to pass i was thinking the other day about this actually i don't quite know when that when it starts to really speed up you know it's um yeah yeah i think well certainly the key a key marker was parenthood yeah that that was when i felt that you remember as a as i don't know if you ever jumped on a skateboard as a kid yeah when you're the first time you're on a skateboard going down a hill and you jump off and you realise the ground is moving faster than yeah. your feet can go. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. you enter this kind of comical spin before falling, you know, stacking it and, and really injuring yourself. Yeah. And parenthood to me was that moment when time started to move faster than my feet could move. Yeah. And, and there is no longer an opportunity to sort of stop, gather, that exactly. you know, because your, your, exactly. your economic systems, all the systems in your life yeah. start going faster than you can really manage. Exactly. And you don't have that kind of ability anymore or circumstance to be able to gather your thoughts and gather your gather yourself and just, you know, plan in quite and the it, same way. It's just you want to kind of Yeah. Work. Yeah. And, it's 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 an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I think this this connects really nicely with the ending of your book. Yeah. And I wonder what your thoughts were on you know, our perceptions of time and the level of busyness and the craziness we operate in our lives and the rise of technology. Yeah. And the, you know, the Western UK move towards a neoliberal society. Yeah. And you, your book seems to attack that. I, I can't quite remember the quote, but, I, you know, reading yeah. the last, the last sections were just, you know, like I said, tears were rolling down my, my face at, at how almost 
political it was. And so going back to the start of this conversation, what I realised... Well, I, I can't find the quote. Could, but to do, I realised that I... Sorry, yeah. Well, what, what I realised yeah. was a lot... I, I work at the University of Westminster teaching music yeah. and this kind of professionalisation of music. And our parents' generation... My dad never expected to be a professional musician... Yeah. He plays and loves music to his very soul. Yeah. And yet I felt the need to become a professional musician. And I've recently questioned that. Was that ego? What was all of that mm. talking? But with my job, it's so involved, so full on, that I rarely, some weeks go past, I can't even touch my instrument. I can't even yeah. play anything. Yeah. And, you know, with rising house prices and technology overload, your book attacks... Almost professionalism and attacked that need for constant recognition in that world. Yeah. I'm, I'm not quite capturing yeah. it as as well as you put it, but you nailed it. it, it it's yeah, it's the idea of, of 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 you know being locked into locked into um, the economic system. It, it's it's you know we yeah. all feel it deeply of course it's a, it, it is a it is a trap and we're all trapped in it and it's yeah. and it's a it's difficult wrestling with that you know um yeah and you know any anything we can do to reclaim our own our own space within that is going to be positive it, doesn't I, it's I not necessarily it. going to going to come from music for some people yeah but, you know it's I, yeah i found it here oh, yeah. so you've got uh, which you know because you wrote this book uh, <laughs> the drone is fundamentally subversive when taken in relation to capitalist doctrine, yeah, yeah, I think it is because because I mean if you, if you think if you think about you know it's, it's feeds back into what we were talking about before in terms of commercial music and the idea of a radio single for example and the idea of a hook and the idea of of, of needing to get there quickly and I think that's only accelerated now I I don't I don't really engage too much with with you know spotify and so on but you know I've, I've i was reading recently a lot of people a lot of um commercial musicians are having to get to the hook much faster you know if you're if you're yeah. making a commercial pop song it's not good enough anymore just to have like typical verse chorus verse you've got to be bang into the melody straight away because of course people just scroll through spotify listening to five seconds of a song you know it's 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 so it's it's definitely impacted the way we consume music you know i think on, on that level i mean it's, that's a different world to, to my world but but it's um yeah i think i think drone music's absolutely subversive if you take it on purely commercial terms or, or take it on purely commercial terms you know you're not going to hear a half hour piece an hour long piece on the radio ever really hardly Unless, of course, you're listening to, say, NTS or, or one of the many fantastic underground stations. Of course, yeah. that, that's, a different, that's a different animal. But I'm talking about the world of commercial radio. You know, even, even, the, world, you know, even the you know, underground outlets we've got on, on, on Six Music and Radio 3 and so on. You know, you have, you, you, you're still going to be constrained in terms of how much of a certain piece you can play. You know, so yeah. it's, um, it's, yeah, it flies in the face of that absolutely and it's more all the all, all the more glorious for it i think you know were you influenced in this final statement by mark fisher and 
his writings on. Not really, actually. I haven't read a huge amount of. I haven't read a huge amount of Mark Fisher. He's always been one of those figures that I've kind of, I've, 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 I've got the, the only the only Mark Fisher book I've got which I've really enjoyed was um, the Weird and the Eerie, which is kind of about his, his kind of ruminations yeah. on 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 horror. Because I'm quite I'm 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 a huge Arthur Matchin fan, and I love H.P. Lovecraft, and I like I like English folk horror. I'm very much in, in, interested in that world, so I've I've read that, and it's fantastic. Um, I've not actually read um, what's his what's his big what's his big um, I forget the name of his big one. Um, well, there's he sort of evolved from music critic into this yeah, kind yeah. of ha- hauntological yeah. notion that we're stuck in a musical loop. Yeah. Where we're not really generating any new ideas. Yeah. And I've just started reading his latest one, which is uh, a transcript of his final lectures. Yeah. Called Post Capitalist Desire. Yeah. And yeah, it, I, I personally have come to believe that he's our greatest sort of 20th century philosopher. Yeah. Which makes me even sadder that he's not around to yeah. continue this trajectory yeah of thought but there's definite parallels with the way you're writing yeah. i mean i think i think in terms of in terms of fish's ideas i mean i've i've just just from you know from in in terms of his ideas on capitalism and i mean as, as i understand it it's the you know the idea of capitalism being completely the the, the idea that we're not only trapped by the, the system itself but we're trapped by the idea that it's this immovable system that that's yeah. kind of this is it forevermore you know and and the idea that any kind of utopian thought outside of that is instantly shot down i mean i've seen a few of his lectures online which i thought were absolutely fantastic but it's not in terms of was he an influence on me not not really but i do understand that you know he, he I, I i understand that his you know his uh thoughts on the current way of the world were um perhaps there's there's some definite intersections there yeah it's it's a fascinating question isn't it that we actually are stuck in an infinite loop where we can't imagine post-capitalism i mean mm-hmm. when i talk to people who are sort of not reading his books and paul mason wrote one called post-capitalism people almost look at me like well why are you reading that as if there's just yeah. Don't even imagine after capitalism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are. This is it. Yeah, the end. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a scary thought, and I think it's it's um, perhaps an un, perhaps an unhelpful thought, really, in terms of getting too bogged down in that. You know, the idea. Yeah. You, you know, you have to be able to you have to be able to imagine some kind of future that that where, where, where there is room for utopian thought. I mean, yeah, we yeah. you know we're, we're we're gifted the the um, the power of imagination, you know, and the, the, that's that's such a powerful it's a powerful thing, you know, the yeah. idea of being stuck forever in this kind of uh, this this current state where everything's commodified, you know, including well, I love it in the and, and this is something I wanted to bring up but I haven't managed to squeeze it in, but yeah. The way you oscillate between language in the book, I just think is is magnificent. From you know, social, the social media crack monkey really <laughs> stuck with me. Um, the shit, it is. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it is the, the, the dopamine hits of a real thing. Yeah. And we, 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 you yeah. know, we might like to think that we're somehow immune to that, you know. But nobody's immune. Nobody. 
you know, that you get that little notification. Ooh, you know, it's a little hit. You know, it's an addictive little hit. And it's a horrible thought, isn't it? It's a horrible thought. It's a horrible that, and it's so, it's so diminishing. There's something so desperately diminishing about that, about, yeah. about being excited on an animal level, about a little number coming up on the screen notification one notification two. Oh, you know the more the more the merrier you know it's and it's it's kind of it's so diminishing but we're all we're all uh, sl- sl- i don't i won't say we're all slaves to that because actually there, there's there you know there are a number people, of people some people aren't yeah involved in it you know i've got i've got a few friends that are that never got onto social media of any yeah. description you know they're all much happier i think than a lot of people that yeah. get too into it but it's it but but i think by and large yeah anyone who's involved in social media in any, it will, will have that reaction. It's a horrible thought. Yeah, Rob, Robert McFarlane retweeted one of my posts once, and that was my first insight into what it'd be like being famous on social yeah, media. Yeah, yeah. Because all of a sudden, you... honestly, it was dinging like a like a cash machine. Exactly. <laughs> it was like bing, 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 and I was like, yeah. hooray! <laughs> and then I'm just like, this is so sad. It is so sad, isn't it? Yeah. Do you do you kind of t- do you take breaks? Do you turn it off? I like, do, how actually. do you do how do you protect <laughs> that? Creative inner you, small break. The inner drone of Harry Sword. Recently, I've been involved in the whole, you know, the promoting the book and doing all of that. So it's it's kind of it's very much part. It's part and parcel of of of, of being a writer these days. Is that you know you you of course you're going to be on Twitter and you're going to be engaging with people reading your book and it's a lot of it, a lot of it's lovely. You know, I've met a lot of really nice people and interesting people through. Through social media, this interview was set up on yeah. Twitter, wasn't it? You know, we, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. we're the only reason we're sitting talking right now is because of, because of Twitter, I suppose. You know, yeah, yeah. but you know, it would have been it, it, much harder to arrange in, in the old days. Um, but I do take breaks. Yeah, I take small breaks. You know, because it's yeah. it's important, especially now, in the sense of you know not seeing people so much, and it's very easy yeah. to become insular you know overly insular overly kind of egotistical you know you've got this avatar and you're feeding it and you're constantly you know constantly pumping stuff out you know it's um it's it's a trap though it's a trap and it needs to be it needs to be recognized as such and once you do recognize that i think you're more able to 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 deal with it you know yeah. I mean, I only, I'm, only on, I'm only on Twitter. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I won't allow myself to be on any of the others. I used to have Facebook, but that's a fucking nightmare. You know, and it's just, uh, you know, I don't really want anything to do with that side of things right now. So it's just... Facebook is horrible. Yeah. I think it's horrible. Yeah. So, it's a horrible platform. I'm really not a fan yeah, at all. I mean, and, at, least, at least Twitter, there's a sort of... There's a, a libertarian sort of freedom, knowledge exchange. Yeah. And what I like about Twitter is... It in different ways, can't it? You know, yeah. I think, I think and I like the way on... Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say... I like on Twitter how you can connect in to communities of thought. Yeah. Like, you know, like I've connected in with you on Twitter. Yeah. Connected in with sort of Mark Fisher groups and it, it allows for that. That's the positive side of it. And, I, and I've, That's really I've tried to do recently, I found myself during the pandemic kind of increasingly angry about things politically and just ranting 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 on twitter and what it's just bad bad energy negative energy just anger so, i have seen a few of your rants harry <laughs> you know and it's been, at the end of the day it's just feeding negativity feeding anger what's the point so i'm quite interested in people that manage to go through these experiences without 
ever posting anything political. I think it's fantastic. Like, I don't know if you know the writer of David Keenan. He he never posts anything political. You know, it's 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 yeah. it's all it's always art, music, it's positive. You know, it's um, yeah. you know, I think it's I think it's a positive thing if you can use it in that sense. You know, and just just yeah. focusing on 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 what's important and not getting fed into that cycle of endless outrage and anger because it's a downward spiral, isn't it? It's pointless. Mm. So. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I do try and take I do try and take breaks, but really at the moment it's more trying to kind of keep it, you know, keep. Yeah, this is your this is your book tour, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. You know, yeah. I, I haven't done a single face to face event. You know, it's um, it's yeah. everything. Everything's been online, the whole thing, which has been weird. You know, because a couple of years ago, I, yeah, well, I, a couple of years ago, I would have come come up to you and, and we would have done this face to face. You know, uh, yeah. you know, I would yeah. have I spoke to Stephen Melinda for Rough Trade. It would have been nice to have. It would, would have been nice to have done that face to face, you know. We're, unfortunately, with the first event I was going to do live um, was with uh, Jen, Jen Allen, whose book The Four Corners Lament has just been released on White Rabbit, and we're, we're, I was going to do an interview with her talking about talking about her book, but unfortunately, that's just been cancelled. We're just trying to kind of re- reschedule that for the social. Well, but it'll be lovely. I'm a massive fan are. of. Um... Yeah. I'm a massive fan of White Rabbit. I read the yeah. Richard Russell book Liberation Through Hearing. Yeah. And... And uh, loved it, absolutely loved it, and put that straight on the University of Westminster reading list. Yeah, excellent. It's such an interesting exploration of commercial music, you know, the world of record companies' music, and, and shatters a lot of illusions, I think. Absolutely, yeah. So that, that is wonderful. And, and the, yeah, White Rabbit are just incredible. I want to read every book put out yeah, they, and... They, you know, it's been, it's been amazing to be, be part of it, really. They've, you know, every, everything they've been... Everything they've released so far has been 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 interesting, you know. So yeah, it's got that feeling of a of a cool record company, you know, yeah. where like a, a new label where you're like you can belong to it somehow, and and that's yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. So it's been good. You've left a massive hole in my life, you know. I've, I've been living with this book for six months. I've read it twice. Yeah, I've pretty much listened only to the playlist. You know what's next for you and what's next for me. Like, where do we go now, well, Harry? <laughs> Lead us. <laughs> I'm working. I'm working on a bit of fiction at the moment, actually. So that's that's. I, I'm 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 wanting to uh, explore slightly different avenues for for yeah. for my next uh, my next project. So yeah. How long do you give yourself? Because I um, I I believe I finished my record, which came out in December. Yeah. That was a two and a half year, very yeah. deep incredibly involved piece of work and I haven't been able to engage with anything yeah. large scale after how long are you expecting to give yourself before the next major project are you deep well, in or do you no, give I've, yourself I've, space I've started already I mean I don't really want to sort of talk about it too much but, I've, but yeah I've, I've, I mean I've I, I gave myself a couple of months three months four months to promote monolithic undertow and that's still ongoing you know and will be ongoing throughout the year I think but um yeah, it's um, it's been a huge part of my life for four years. It's been my life. It's been my my life for four years. And like I said, you know, it's been such a crazy time. It's you know, with within the whole life cycle of the book, I had two kids. You know, have been born, and it's been amazing. You know, it's been it's been a huge, huge, crazy journey, really. But um, it's um, well, I think what it does so successfully, and this is something I wrestle with as an artist. I as part of my teaching, I got really into Seth Godin as a as a thinker on marketing. Yeah. And 
he successfully flipped the idea of marketing from a very pre-internet idea mm. of you tell people about stuff buy this car yeah <laughs> big advert you know yeah. millennium like uh you know in between football games or whatever millions of people see yeah. big advert buy buy the land rover to what he calls billions of tiny whispers mm. where marketees are now encouraged to learn to see or, or learn to hear, to see the market and hear the market rather than broadcast their voice. And I love this idea of teaching marketing that way of like actually to make a successful product, to market a successful product, you've got to learn to become part of the community, hear what the community mm -hmm. wants and belong. And I think your book has done, and one of his, one of his quotes that I, I write down is, yeah. remember the Bob Dylan rule, it's not a record, it's a movement. And I feel your book keys into this. It's a very giving book. It's very, it encourages you to, to be part of something. To, it feels like a service to the community. And I think this is one of my questions as an artist is, yeah. of course, making a product, it's quite easy to think, oh, you know, <laughs> Harry might like a, a beard trimmer that does this. <laughs> <laughs> he might be. <laughs> right? Yeah. So products are quite easy, but I think yeah. when you're looking up art in this way and i feel it's a very neoliberal way to look at it like how can my art be of service mm. it becomes incredibly complex i think to think of art in that way yeah. maybe not even right i don't, I don't know. I know what you mean i mean in, in terms in terms of the book and community it's, it's very it's interesting because i was working with 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 quite disparate worlds you know if you take for example the world of free jazz the world mm. of doom metal the world of avant-garde music um, the world of techno, uh, they're all, in a way, they can be and have been quite insular in some respects, you know. Um, but I, I was very keen on not allowing myself to be too bogged down in the weeds and to be able to connect things conceptually and not worry too much. First, firstly, not worry too much about alienating different listeners different readers you know I just wanted people yeah. to be able to kind of see the connections and enjoy the yeah. connections really yeah. you know well, and, it's, and, well, and that's beautiful... one of the things I've been really pleased about I've been so pleased about is to go on um, Amazon or Goodreads and to read some of the reviews and there was one guy who said look I'm a, like an accordion player in my 60s and really enjoyed this or to have people who are really only into metal and to have them get something from it too, you know, it's it, it, I, that that was my my intention really was to be able to connect things on a slightly deeper level, and I hope I've done that, you know. So yeah, well, a, a really beautiful outcome of that personally for me was my dad's a big jazz fan, and yeah, I he bought me a lot of jazz records, and I really got into it at a certain point in my life, and especially you know Charlie Mingus, John Coltrane, some of those yeah. more prayer like. Yeah. elements of jazz Absolutely. but as I've gone in deeper and deeper into minimalism my dad has been you know I don't get this yeah <laughs> I don't get what you're into this and to me I was perceiving jazz to be a very egotistical mode a very personal expression whereas minimalism almost connects like the way a city is connected from a drone perspective where everything yeah. is connecting in uh what feels like chaos on one level is very harmonious you know when you like speed up traffic or whatever and Absolutely. it just looks amazingly harmonious yeah, and this this book has connected me back in with my dad and we've 
we've been sat down again, really enjoying the. You know, he's been playing Alice Coltrane, and I've yeah, become a humongous fan. I think, I think it's like is if if you listen to, uh, uh, I mean, my my, my favourite John Coltrane record, which a lot of people are surprised at, is Om. You know, which is just half an hour of absolute chaos, madness. It's just huge, yeah. kind of totality of sound I love it and it's just yeah a lot of people would listen to that and think well what's that got to do with the drone it's kind of got everything to do with the drone you know it's it, it's he was fascinated by Indian music fascinated by Ravi Shankar yeah. you know and he was obsessed with the idea of creating um a bedding you know for for every everyone else to run wild on you know really it's 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 a, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing I think you know so a lot of the music in that chapter, you wouldn't necessarily kind of consider it to be deeply connected to the drone. But then when he, I spoke to Michelle Coltrane, his daughter, and she described how important Indian music was to what he was doing, you know, and to what Alice Coltrane were doing, was doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I really, I'm really thankful to you for finding that bridge because it's allowed me to really enjoy music listening and, and it's also facilitated in my dad. And in our connection yeah. to the music I'm making and minimalism and, and that and that whole trajectory. So it's been great. So Cheers. what should we read now, Harry? Now we've finished your book. <laughs> what would you recommend next? Um, I'm, I'm reading a fantastic book at the moment. Actually, another White Rabbit book um, by Will Burns called The Paper Lantern. Yeah. You, you know, we were talking earlier on about lockdown, about, about um, you know, lockdown books. Well, this is a lockdown book, basically. It's a, it's a, it's a novel set in a small village. Um, a pub called the Paper Lantern. It's absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant kind of exploration of small town, small village life, and people's lives yeah. within that. And it's 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 absolutely brilliant. So I go and check Wilgerberg. Have you ever read um, Nan Shepherd's the things called the Lovely Mountain? I haven't. No. That's really interesting. That's a very Buddhist text written, I think, in the sixties or seventies. Was largely ignored, and rather than summiting. Yeah. The Cairngorms. Nan Shepherd talks about being the Cairngorms. Yeah, it's a very short book. You might like it, and it, it definitely there are parallels between you know the ACDC drone world. It's it's a beautiful text. It's absolutely marvelous. So um, thanks for your recommendation. I'm going to read that yeah, next. Yeah, do, do uh, it's out in early July. So definitely check that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an incredible conversation i can't thank you enough for coming on thanks so much for having me. thanks for writing the book it's a pleasure thanks for having me matt enjoy the rest of your day harry we'll do take care mate bye 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 so yes there we go wow are you still there congratulations if you made it this deep into the podcast i hope you enjoyed that chat with harry sword I certainly did. It's interesting listening back to yourself. And uh, this was recorded a while ago. It's not easy, I think, listening back to yourself. I kind of think I need to get better at rounding up my thoughts into a question. Because I noticed Harry Sword is an excellent listener. And he ends his words really cleanly with a full stop and waits with a pause for the next paragraph in which I can ask a question. I noticed mine all kind of dovetail in somehow 
which gets a bit messy. Also, the audio was really difficult to put together for this one, so apologies if in places it sounded a bit weird. Essentially, I wore headphones and recorded on my mic, and um, Harry's sword recorded on a dictaphone, but my voice was coming out as well. And for some reason, all of the techniques I use, the Zoom recording, I think, was slightly phasing forwards and backwards in time, which made it an utter nightmare. Anyway, seeing as this is an audio podcast, I thought I'd share that with you. So yes, okay, in summary, so thinking again about the name of the podcast, yeah, I think it's going to be Play in the System, Modular Drone. No, I've got it. Play in the System, Modular Minimalism, Ambient Drone and Modern Classical. I think that's the kind of areas that we're going to cover. I like that. I hope you do too. And yeah, I also thought I'd run a competition. I've left it this late so that only the hardcore kind of get there. But yes, I'm going to buy you, famed listener of Playing the System, I'm going to buy you a copy of Harry's book for the best comment on the show. And yeah, I'm also trying to kind of professionalise this podcasting thing a bit. So never said this before but if you enjoy the podcast please like it subscribe to it and share it it makes a massive difference and I'm also setting up a patreon for this podcast where I'm going to throw in some bits and bobs samples and uh, other things so look out for that I'm setting that up at the moment and the next episode is going to feature none other than the incredible Jas Shaw from Simeon Mobile Disco and his own music. Jas is a brilliant modular artist. And yeah, we had a, a really long chat. So look out for that next episode. I promise it won't be in six months. It'll be coming really soon. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you're up to. Send me your music, send me your thoughts. And yeah, really, thank you so much. See you next time.